Welcome to the Paperback Show. I'm your host, Ricky Lee Grove. This is episode 13. In this episode, we'll be covering the life and paperback publishing history of the famed mystery writer Kenneth Miller, a.k.a. Ross MacDonald. His series of novels set in Southern California feature the detective Lou Archer and were published between 1949 and 1976. We will share a brief biography of this remarkable novelist, cover the paperback publishing history of the Lou Archer novels, and in the last half of the show, discuss McDonald's classic Lou Archer novel, Black Money, with returning co-host Richard Brewer. Ross McDonald is the main pseudonym for the writer Kenneth Miller, pronounced like Miller. He used other pseudonyms early in his writing career, John Ross McDonald and John McDonald, but hit on Ross McDonald for the bulk of his writing career. Kenneth Miller is an American, having been born in Los Gatos, California in 1915. However, his parents were Canadian, so Kenneth was raised in Canada. Kitchener, Ontario, to be precise. His early life was troubled. His father left him and his mother to fend for themselves in 1919, when Kenneth was four years old. This act left an indelible impression on him, one that is reflected in his novels with the theme of the search for identity. The sense of family and its disillusion would reverberate in his novels for most of his writing life. As Michael Kraling put it in his excellent book, The Novels of Ross MacDonald, Lou Archer is consistently involved in cases where he tries to put a family back together or understand how it came apart. You can imagine how hard it must have been for Kenneth Miller's mother during this period. They lived hand-to-mouth and spent time with various relatives to get by. Those relatives were strict Mennonites, who seasoned their charity with a sense of resentment that stuck with Kenneth his whole life. At one point, their poverty grew so desperate that his mother took him to the doors of an orphanage. But Kenneth's desperate cries changed her mind. Another indelible memory that would scar his adult life. He was fortunate when his Aunt Laura offered to send the teenage Kenneth Miller to a private school in Ontario, where he excelled. He was always a big reader. Reading writers like Charles Dickens and Joseph Conrad helped him escape his desperate life and gave him a glimpse of something better. He was an intelligent and sensitive young man, and the semi-protected life at school helped him develop his own sense of himself. And despite some wild times as a rebellious teenager and an arrest for theft, he pulled himself together and focused on getting an education. But where would the money come from? The 1929 stock market crash brought him back to Kitchener, where he graduated in 1932. His father, John, had come back to Kitchener because of ill health and was being cared for in a local charity hospital. Kenneth visited his sickbed, but kept his father's presence in the city a secret. And when his father died in 1933, Kenneth got his second break in life because his father had a life insurance policy that was just enough to pay for four years of college. 
He enrolled in Waterloo College in 1934. In his sophomore year, his mother died from a cerebral hemorrhage. He discovered her naked body on the floor of her kitchen, another indelible image. He took a year off from college with a surprise inheritance from his mother and visited Europe where he saw the rise of Hitler's Nazi party firsthand. When Kenneth Miller returned from his sabbatical, he was a different person, more mature and self-assured. He had started a romance with his soon-to-become wife, writer Margaret, before he left for Europe and started dating her again when he returned. They were married in 1938, just after he graduated from college. Margaret Miller was to become a well-known suspense author and helped Kenneth's writing career years later when she recommended him to her publisher, Alfred Knopf. Since Kenneth had dual citizenship, Canadian and American, he applied to graduate school at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and was accepted. With a college teaching job in hand, a marriage, now with a young daughter, Linda, he spent summers in Ann Arbor studying for a graduate degree. He finally had a good job, a family, and a decent life for himself. Both Margaret and Kenneth longed to become writers, though. She succeeded before he did, but Kenneth spent a good deal of time trying to find buyers for his fiction. He wrote short stories and even had a novel tucked away. He was never keen on becoming a professor. What he wanted to be was a professional writer. World War II interrupted his graduate studies, and he ended up serving as a communications officer in the U.S. Navy until 1946. His wife, Margaret, sold a suspense novel to Warner Brothers, and she became a well-known novelist of the period. Kenneth wrote two suspense novels himself while serving in the war, and both were published by Dodd Mead. They were The Dark Tunnel, 1944, and Trouble Follows Me, in 1946. Discharged in 1946, he returned to his graduate studies at Ann Arbor, where he studied under the great poet and critic W.H. Auden, himself a fan of mystery fiction, who encouraged him to continue to write mysteries. Kenneth Miller published Blue City in 1947, followed by The Three Roads in 1948. His first four novels were all non-series standalone novels, by this time, he had finished his doctoral studies and completed his thesis study on the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, quite a long way from a boy who was almost given up for adoption. Kenneth Miller introduced his now-famous detective, Lou Archer, named partially after character from a Dashiell Hammett novel, Maltese Falcon, with a short story, Find the Woman, in 1946. A full-length novel followed in 1949, titled The Moving Target. He wrote in the style of Raymond Chandler, primarily, with some aspects of Hammett's hard-boiled style as seasoning. It was a big improvement from his previous novels and set him on a course to a professional career as a mystery writer. By this time, 1949, the Miller family had moved to Santa Barbara, California, a city that would become Santa Rosa in the Archer novels and would be his home for the rest of his life. Kenneth taught part-time at the local city college 
while he continued to write Lou Archer novels. His wife Margaret also continued her writing career with much success. Linda, their daughter, attended the local school. What must it have been like to live in a home with two professional writers dedicated to their careers and intellectual lives? Sadly, trouble loomed in the future with Linda Miller, who started showing signs of mental instability in the late 1950s. Despite being published writers, the Millers' combined income was meager, and the Archer novels Kenneth was writing were not overly popular initially. In fact, Kenneth almost abandoned Archer at one point, but he decided to keep writing Lou Archer novels both for his own satisfaction and because a movie version of the Archer novel, The Moving Target, starring Paul Newman, bought in enough money for them to buy their own home in Santa Barbara, in addition to bringing in increased sales and attention to the Lou Archer novels. By 1968, Kenneth Miller was a successful and popular mystery novelist who was slowly pulling away from the force of the Chandler-Hammett tradition and creating his own type of mystery story centered around the theme of family, loss, and identity. This break came with the publication of The Galton Case in 1959. Some of his success were the results of his extensive psychotherapy. In therapy, he began to come to grips with his childhood trauma, and thus the theme of his Lou Archer novels and even the character of Lou Archer himself benefited from this self-analysis. As Miller put it in an interview, the terrain of the novels are about people and their lives rather than clues. Lou Archer is a psychological and moral detective. In the late 1960s, Kenneth Miller became a best-selling novelist with his 15th Lou Archer novel, The Goodbye Look. Bantam Books began reprinting all of his novels in paperback, and his work was started to receive attention from critics and academics. His success as a novelist also coincided with the rise of California as an ideal destination for Americans. His depictions of the Southern California landscape of his time, along with a range of unique characters from all class levels, were also what made him such a popular and literary novelist. After the goodbye look, Kenneth Miller wrote three more highly regarded novels until Alzheimer's disease silenced him for the last decade of his life. He struggled in those last years. His daughter, now an alcoholic, died in 1970, and his wife's eyes and body suffered from muscular degeneration. Thirty years of writing and teaching had taken their toll. He left a final Archer novel unfinished. Kenneth Miller died in 1983 at the age of 67. Welcome back to the Paperback Show. In this section, we'll be talking about Ross MacDonald in paperback. Kenneth Miller, a.k.a. Ross MacDonald, had a writing career which coincided with the paperback revolution, which began in 1939. And, of course, his novels were reprinted in paperback. 
However, the only paperback original, meaning the first publication anywhere, is the Bantam 1955 edition of The Name is Archer, with a brilliant cover by artist Mitchell Hooks. All other novels by John Ross MacDonald, John MacDonald, and Ross MacDonald were published in hardback first and then reprinted in paperback. I was unable to find a paperback reprint of early Ross MacDonalds in the 1940s. The first MacDonald paperbacks published according to the official price guide of paperbacks by John Warren was one by Dell in their mapback format titled Blue City, Dell 365, and one by Lion Books, The Dark Tunnel, Lion number 48. Lion also published Trouble Follows Me, Lion 47, in 1950. Lion finished their Ross MacDonald reprints with the 1955 I Die Slowly, a.k.a. Troubles Follows Me, Lion LL 52. The Lion paperbacks have excellent covers and are quite collectible. Note that Lion published the three novels under the Kenneth Miller author name. These were the only paperbacks published with his real name. Dell published one more Kenneth Miller paperback, The Three Roads, in 1951, Dell 497, with a great cover by Robert Sterling. As John MacDonald, Pocket Books published the first Lou Archer novel in 1950, The Moving Target, Pocket 683, with a classic cover by Harvey Kidder. From 1951 on, Bantam was Ross MacDonald's paperback reprint publisher, starting with The Drowning Pool in 1951, Bantam 821, with a cover by Roy App. As I mentioned earlier, The Name is Archer is the only paperback original by Ross MacDonald. That was the 1955 Bantam with the great Mitchell Hooks cover. Although I'm not 100% certain, I believe Bantam reprinted the entire Lou Archer series each decade with new cover designs that reflected the design trends of the time. One of the best ways to see these cover design changes is to view the excellent article by J. Kingston Pierce, who follows all cover design, cloth, and paperback of Ross MacDonald's first Lou Archer, The Moving Target. Check our show notes for the link. There's also a series of articles on the website killercoversoftheweek.blogspot.com that features several series of McDonald paperbacks. I'll share the link in the show notes as well. Currently, Ross McDonald's is published by the Vintage Trade Paperback Black Lizard series, which have pretty boring covers. Still, the trade size is handy and easier to read if you have old eyes like I do. The Bantam paperback that I read of Black Money was one of the first paperback reprints and featured a staged photographic cover of a sexy guy with a woman hanging all over him with the subtitle Lou Archer, the hardest of the hard-boiled dicks. As far away from the truth as you could possibly get. (laughs) Well, that's it for the paperbacks. Check our uh, show notes at paperbackshow.com for links and pictures of the covers. Stay tuned for a conversation with Richard Brewer on Ross McDonald's great novel, Black Money. Coming up next. 
Hello, everyone. In this section of the podcast, we're joined by returning co-host Richard Brewer. He shares the mic on uh, Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, and James M. Cain episodes. Richard is a producer and narrator of audiobooks. He also writes reviews for Publishers Weekly. Richard and I worked together at the Mysterious Bookshop in Los Angeles for many years and share a passion for the mystery genre. Welcome back, Richard. Hi. Thank you so much for having me back. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. And yes, weeks me and too. Weeks. Me too. <laughs> Before we launch in, I want to do a brief publication history of uh, Black Money, a little background. Published in 1966 by Knopf, uh, Black Money's first paperback publication is probably Bantam's 1967 edition with the staged photographic cover of a riverboat gambler, I think, and a dance hall girl behind him squeezing his elbow and caressing his hair. Um, Bantam did most of the paperbacks for uh, uh, Ross McDonald. Um, this whole initial series has this mysterious male figure looking at the uh, reader also some other odd blurbs uh, richard i think you might find this interesting mm -hmm. on the very top of the book it says lou archer the hardest of the hard-boiled dicks <laughs> they also have another one in the back don't miss archer the loner with the lethal gun huh you sort Which, of wonder, who are they selling this book to? It also makes me wonder if they'd actually read the book. That's what I'm saying. Or even, <laughs> yeah. a, pl even a plot synopsis. And speaking of plot synopsis, let me give you a brief one before we jump in. Uh, as I said, Black Money was published in 1966. It's Ross McDonald's personal favorite and considered by many critics and uh, writers on Ross McDonald to be one of his very best. Uh, the plot cons uh, concerns a Peter Jameson, who's a jilted boyfriend of the formerly wealthy Virginia Ginny Fablin. He hires Lou Archer to investigate the background of Francis Martell, a man of mysterious wealth, grandiose claims, and violent threats. Ginny and Martell quickly wed after Archer's arrival. The resulting inquiries take Archer from the homeless to the university classroom, to the wealthy enclaves. Archer links Martell and Ginny to old gambling debts, black money, undeclared income, and a suicide that might have been murder. Eventually, a killer is unveiled who takes his own life, leaving in his wake corpses, destroyed lives, and a hollowed out Ginny. Is there anything else you want to add to that plot synopsis? I know I left out a ton, but. Well, and. I think it would it would be so hard to um, encapsulate the, the the entire plot. I think one of the things we should talk about is the sheer intricacy of this plot. Exactly. Um, and if if you to jump right in, if you want. Um, if oh, you by the way, that the title refers to cash skimmed by casino operators to avoid taxes. Right. That, sh that should give you a little clue as to the where Mar our uh, archer's journey what he's journeying towards following right. the cash which also takes him yeah to las vegas uh right. at one point um he actually traveled a lot in this 
He drives he back and forth. He flies. Um, he uh, uses the technology of the times, you know, which is you know, telephoning other places and, and getting getting um, uh, faxes and things. Right. Um, it's there's so much going on in this book. I I I I I, I was surprised at how complex the overall story was primarily the complexity of the characters which mm. if you are to um i mean everybody's got so many different levels you know the most being martel um of who they are what they want where they came from um backstories and um yeah i was just uh, blown away by 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 all of the uh wait he did what and then he did wait she's what and she wants what <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and he uncovers all of this yeah and um and what i loved about it was that it's not in the pulpy hard-boiled detective thing he doesn't he leads with his mind not with his fists very very I true was, i thought was very interesting very, very true um archers are uh excuse me mcdonald's uh, by the way, his real name, uh, our, Ross McDonald is a pseudonym. His real name is Kenneth Miller. Um, his first book, uh, what the hell was it? Blue, Blue City. Blue City was, came out the same time as I, the Jury by Mickey Spillane. He was a post-war 50s writer who wrote in the style of uh, Chandler, for a long, long time, uh, very, very slowly gaining interest and in, in refining his style. His background was uh, as an academic. He wrote his doctoral thesis on Coleridge. And um, so he was working really hard to get the right style and keep selling. At, at one point, he almost quit because he he wasn't quite getting the sales that he, he thought and the interest that he thought he was and was going to give up the Archer series, but he stayed with it. And then a series of events happened to him at middle age. Um, the biggest being he got involved in psychoanalysis, which changed his whole idea of writing his mysteries. And it started with the Galton case in 62, I think. And he completely changed his, uh, his way of style of writing and his way of looking at characters. And that was reflected in the last uh, books that uh, he wrote, of which Black Money is is my favorite. But his uh, his whole thing about Black Money is that he carried the idea for Black Money in his mind for twenty years. He said, "Right, right." Kept kept notes and yeah. kept kind of coming back to it and revisiting it and trying to figure. He was a person that used journals and notes to come up with ideas and put things together. And he, he wrote uh, himself in the Tom, great Tom Nolan biography, uh, McDonald says, it took me all that time to figure out how I could write Black Money and to decide where the central character came from, who he was, and what the source of the Black Money was. He said, year after year, I'd ret return to these ideas, make more notes, and cross-reference to the old notebook and put it away until I was ready. It was the longest I had held a book in mind before I wrote it. Right, 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 right. I think the um, 
the interesting aspect of it is, and I, I, I've read reviews that talk about this, and I think he brings it up too, is uh, partial of his inspiration in something which would go back to the 1920s is The Great Gatsby. Right. Is there's a real, and if you think about The Great Gatsby, you think of Jay Gatsby, you think of uh, Francis Martel, they are very similar characters. Yeah, yeah. You know, and right up, you know, right up to the tragic, to the tragic end. You know, um, so yeah, he he played with this, and I think that that, and I keep coming back to saying the intricacy of it. I think that percolation of that twenty years shows in how tightly woven. Oh yeah this this story is and so many things that have to come together you know um and everything leads to something even the um uh the little uh private i want to be um and again a person who is x but wants to be y right everybody wants to be something else everybody wants to be somebody else everybody is looking to be you know, whether it be I want to be better in academia or I want to be richer or I want to be of more um, prestige. Uh, it it just everybody has this desire to be more or to be something different, something different than what they are. Right. Harry Hendrix. deserve that. Henry Hendricks, that's it. Harry Hendricks. Harry Hendricks. Was the water bay. He was a wonderful character in this. He, he, again, you're absolutely right. He, he was a guy who had screwed up his marriage, but wanted to get back together again. Yes. And, and, and wants to get back together with the wife who pursues somebody else. Right. Because she wants something a, else. Something else. She wants money. She wants, yeah. you know, she wants status. Yeah. She, you know, um, in it, a way, it, I think the, the idea of the Gatsby scenario, the poor boy whose love for this sort of golden girl inspires him to raise himself to her level. Mm-hmm. That occur, as you point out, it occurs over and over again. People's dreams and desires, which um, Archer uncovers. In fact, that's his. If you look at almost all of his books, including some of the early ones. He's kind of the <laughs> he's kind of a character that is very much hated by many of the other characters or disliked because he unveils their secrets. Yes. He spins out their secrets. Yes. And they yes, blame him instead of accepting responsibility for their own actions. Well, and the interesting thing about it is he brings them up and then he voices them. You know, usually a lot of times in these hard-boiled detective novels, that's an internal monologue. Right. You know, I think about this and I, you know, I can't believe that she's a woman who wants better, but, you know, is never going to get it. He tells people this. I mean, he tells Jameson, you know, you're a glutton. You know, you've, yeah. got, prob- you've got problems. You need to quit eating like, like you're eating for five people. Right. Um, and he's a great character. Oh my God, he's great. Such, you know, that again, his desire, his want, which is frustrated. He wants Jenny. He wants her 
in his life, and he sub his substitution is the food. And yes. when was the last time, prior to the past twenty years, when I mean, you think about when this was written, that they would write about a food disorder? Mm -hmm. Someone with a with 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 a with a with that kind of a of a problem so openly. Yeah, you know, there's a great passage in the book where uh, uh, McDonald writes about. Uh, uh, that kid, the fat kid, um, he gobbled the food with such eager, straining gluttony that he made me feel like a voyeur. His eyes were fixed and mindless as he chewed. Sweat stood out on his forehead. Oh my gosh, that I forgot about that. That is that's great stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, th yeah. I think in a way, uh, listeners, I I, I don't want to. Um, scare you when we talk about the complexity of the plot of uh, black money or of any of uh, uh, mcdonald's novels they're complex because life is complex <laughs> and they're complex because life is complex and i would add as far as like not scaring somebody away the the brilliance of mcdonald is the complexity flows out smoothly yes Yes. As you read it, it, the revelations that come up are very um, organic, and it's not like he's throwing stuff. At, it's not like reading a textbook. Yeah, it's you get a very smoothly told story where these aspects pop up, and they add layers as you go along. Yes, it's building blocks. They're all building blocks. So at the end of it, you have this wonderful building of a story. And then you think back on it and go, oh, that's right. Oh, he mentioned that. Oh, he said this. And it, 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 I was so impressed. I was so impressed with this book. And it's one of the longer ones, isn't it? Um, not really. It's a hundred and... Let's see, a hundred... Uh, 201 pages. Perhaps okay. just... Perhaps 10... 15% more, not much more. Okay. I've got a, what I, my, my copy was a, uh, a trade paperback. And so it's, uh, it, it's, it's almost, it's almost 300 pages oh. in, in trade, in trade paperback. Oh, ah, okay. So bigger print and that sort of thing. Right. Um, but there's a great passage and I think it says a lot about what we've been talking about, which is, and I'm trying to think of who she, who's the t woman talking uh, it's, uh, I think it's Bess, who is the wife of... Oh, um, she's such a great character. Tappinger, Tappinger right? Love, yes. Uh -huh. yeah. And um, she talks about life um, uh, like, like, uh, like uh, camping on ice, on a lake of ice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you find yourself thinking of ice as solid ground, though you know there's deep water underneath. And she looked down at the worn rug under her feet as if there were monsters swaying just below it. Yeah. And, <laughs> that's so great. It's so great. And I, and that's the book. I mean, if you take it as a surface level, you have this private eye story, you know, where he's got to track down uh, this person who's may have run off with this girl. And it's a very simple story, but then underneath the ice, are all the monsters yeah. underneath. Yeah. It's, uh, it, yeah. it, uh, it's so impressive. I think a first reading 
you might jot down a couple names so you could remember them, or you might go back and go, oh, that's Harry Hendricks. Okay, he was the guy that, you know. On a second reading, though, it's even more pleasurable because you're already familiar with the characters. Right. So I read, I read, I actually reread it. I had read it many times before. Um, I read it. Then in between rereading it, I read Sarah Paretsky's newest novel, Overboard. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other, it was a wonderful novel. And then came back to Black Money again, and I enjoyed it even more. In fact, it was more impactful on the second reading for me. And I think that may be the case with many of his novels, not because they're overly complex, but because he writes with such psychological subtlety that sometimes you may miss it in your reading because you may be reading it as uh, you may be reading it quickly or you may mm -hmm. be missing details. And he was a very careful writer. He laid everything out in notebooks before he committed paper. He wrote in longhand on yellow legal pads, mostly in the afternoon, sitting on a chair with a board across the arms of the chair. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, he was a very careful and thoughtful writer would go back and rewrite and rewrite. And I, th I think the thing that most impresses me about his writing and why I keep coming back to him is his ability to do two things. One is, is to create characters that are deeply sympathetic. Even the villains are yeah. deeply sympathetic. And also to write landscape the places that, that where things happen. All the way through this uh, Black Money, it takes place on a coastal town, very much like Santa Barbara, where he grew up. Right. A rich enclave. And he constantly travels and makes reference to and looks at the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. The ocean was so important to McDonald, the, the Pacific Ocean. He swam every day. Yeah. Um, he was an environmentalist. He hated the oil rigs out off of, off the coast, and uh, wrote some wrote a couple of really great essays about uh, the oil spills that happened and the desecration of that. And I think the ocean was a sense of calm for him, you know, and gave him and let him reflect. Yes. and you get. I think you feel that when Archer looks out. Yeah. At the ocean. That's usually a, a moment of reflection. Yeah. And kind of pulling things together. I think so too. He, um, he wrote, interestingly, he talked about uh, the detective novel uh, in 1974. He said, McDonald is saying this, I found a form that corresponds to the forms of my own life and the times we live in. On the one hand, violent destruction of order and meaning and on the other hand, unrelenting effort to put the world together again. Wow. Well, I think that that's true of most private eye novels. I think the protagonist is always trying to bring order back, trying to pull things together. Um, I would say that was true of most 
uh, detective novels, with the exception of Mickey Spillane and the others of that ilk, because they are creating the very disorder that <laughs> they're supposedly fighting against. Yeah, 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 yeah. What is, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, difference there between, and it's, I didn't realize um, that, Spillane and and McDonald started roughly in the say at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think what you kind of brought up, and I think what is my, um, and I met Mickey Spillane many times, and he was absolutely a lovely man. Oh my God, just the nicest guy on the planet. Um, but I think the difference between them as authors at, is that McDonald evolved. His, his writing and his characters and his depth evolved. Mickey Spillane wrote the same thing, the same style. You know, um, there was never a problem that couldn't be handled by a punch in the face and a slug from a 45. <laughs> Very true. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Well, I yeah, want to get to yeah. that at the end. I wanted to ask you, uh, when did you first encounter uh, Ross McDonald or Kenneth Miller? Well, and what well, I, was your reaction to his writing? Well, I, um, like so many, I, I think we've talked about this before, that I came to mystery later in my reading. And it came in my 20s, as a, you know, when I, my early years, and I read Sherlock Holmes, and I read the Three Investigators series, one of my That's favorites. That's great. Um, but I was primarily a science fiction guy, science fiction fantasy guy. And in my 20s, I discovered uh, John D. McDonald in the Travis McGee series. And was hooked, totally hooked. And I began looking for those those voices like that. And that led me to Chandler, led me to Hammett. Um, and then I I knew about Ross McDonald. I knew about him. Um, but then I saw Harper with Paul Newman, which is based on the moving target. And I went, oh, well, who's this guy? <laughs> You know, I, I, I probably should look at it much like when you see the Maltese Falcon or when you see, um, uh, you know, uh, crap, uh, the big sleep. Um, you know, it, the movie led me to find the author. And I read The Chill and I love that. Um, and then honestly, he sort of fell off my radar. And I think part of that was because along that route, I just started discovering Lawrence Block and I right. started discovering, you know, there was all of a sudden this other, these other Robert B. Parker. I became a big fan of Robert B. Parker and there's, there's only so much time to have. So there was always the, the um, that he was there and that he was so highly regarded, but I only got him in drips and drabs. I didn't voraciously, follow the series but it was in my in my 20s and it was because of seeing the movie harper right i think a lot of people uh, found uh, mcdonald because of those uh paul newman he did two drowning pool and harper and harper he did harper and, and drowning pool and he wanted to do um a third and just it just never materialized right if you've ever seen um we're going to get a little off topic here, but if you ever get a chance to see a movie that he made in the nineties called twilight, where he plays a retired 
private eye working as basically a gopher for a rich guy. And it was always said that that was sort of the wrap up of the Harper series, even though it's a different character and uh, it has nothing that it has nothing to do uh, with McDonald. He felt that that was sort of the wrap up of that series. Cause it really is this private eye at the end of his, at, at the end of his career, mm. you know, he's no longer a private eye, but he, he gets hired by a rich person to explore a mystery. Right. And, um, if you ever get a chance to see it, I highly recommend it. I, okay. I really like it. And it's uh, Gene Hackman's in it. Lauren McCall's in it. Um, and so is James Garner. Cool. I'll check so it the, out. Yeah. But um, yeah, led to it, led to it by the movies as so often happens. Well, I think those two movies are one of the things that kicked him into being a bestseller and eventually uh, becoming a top seller and getting front page reviews on the New York times. He was uh, considered sort of the new type detective, um, moving away, a concerted move away from the Spillane hard boiled style. Uh, how do you think McDonald compares to the previous authors we've read on the paperback show, Hammett, Chandler and Kane? Well, it's interesting. I, I think that, um, I think when we when we were discussing Kane, we said there's the triangle. You know, people yes, yes. talk about the triangle. They say you know it's it's Hammett and Kane and and uh, Chandler. And I would I would say it's actually a diamond. And you add McDonald to that, right? Because I think he took everything that they laid out and built on that, and in many ways improved on that. Mm. Made them deeper. Made them more um i hate to say this because it made them more literate if you will i think there's there's a depth to them that he that the others touched on and he was able to um build upon and actually bring to the forefront um you have reference. You have so many literate references in these in 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 his books. I mean, he yeah. talks about Shakespeare, and he talks about Dante, and he talks about talks about. Uh, uh, I think it's very interesting that the play, the Sartre play, yeah, the No Exit play, is No Exit. And when you look at at the if you read when you read the book, it's like it's it's such it's like well, of course, <laughs> this of course. All is, why wouldn't it be no exit, you know, right. as opposed to anything else? Right. Um, so I think he was able to bring, uh, I think if you look at Marlowe, Marlowe has a humanness to him, but he's also got a coldness to him. And I feel that Archer is like just sympathy for everybody. There's a, there's a line and I don't remember it well enough. to. It's a horrible paraphrase. I like people and I, I, he says something like, I like people, but I don't like to see them get hurt. Something to that effect. Right. And I, I, you, you get a hint of that with Marlowe. With, um, with Spade, he's a lot colder. He's a lot more matter of fact. Right. You, get, you get the plotting that Hammett brings to his stories. Yes. And also yeah, the yeah, serious so. approach, because Hammett was the first uh, mystery author, American mystery author, to say, uh, this is a, people haven't taken it seriously. 
I'm mm-hmm. going to take this form seriously. And I think McDonald did too. He took it seriously and he did something that perhaps other authors hadn't done to that point, which is incorporate episodes and ideas and experiences from his own life into the books. Interesting. Interesting. How do you mean? How do you, how do you, I'm, I'm well, curious on that one. I mean, I know that there, that, as you said, he got into the uh, psychological aspect of that. Well, as I mentioned, he, he, he uh, read earlier uh, from a great book called Dreamers Who Live Their Dreams, The World of Ross McDonald's Novels by Peter Wolf. Archer in 70, or uh, McDonald said in 74 that um, the mystery was a form that correspond to my life, constantly trying to create order out of chaos. Mm, 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 mm. And all, I mean, I don't have specific things, although right. I think that, you know, his, his background as a person was troubled childhood. His father abandoned them, and there was always a continuing search for identity. Who am I? Where am right. I? There was always right. a sense of class because he came to the lower classes. So um, I think that he was a person who tried to make the hard-boiled mystery genre creative. Um, the accepted wisdom is that he turned the hard-boiled mystery novel into more serious type of novel, and it became literature. I think generally that's probably true. I, think I, it's, I it, question it's, the notion of it being literature or not literature. I agree. I think I, I tend to take a little bit of exception when people talk about... Um, Writing is good. Writing is good. Writing. There That's are it. aspects. There are aspects of Chandler that are sheer poetry. I mean, you there there. Uh, oh yeah. You know, there 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 are passages that that are just absolutely beautiful. And there's a if you go to Hammett, the construction of the Maltese Falcon, the construction of the glass key, the clear um, writing, the the yeah, the lean writing and everything. It's just marvelous. I think what the some critics refer to and not allowing the mystery novel to be considered a, a serious form is that they're talking about the constraints of genre and that those constraints are not present in a uh, regular novelist who's just writing from scratch. They don't have to have the uh, central detective be this type of person. They don't have to have the, the mystery resolved at the end. They don't have any of those compulsions. And I say the form is what allows them to be able to be more creative. I I agree with you. There there is a, um, because of the form, because of, if if you want to call them constrictions, and I I think all you have to do is read James Lee Burke to know that you don't have, you don't have to have constrictions. That's a whole nother story. A whole other discussion. Um, the very fact that they had to find that these writers had to find way to be as creative and descriptive and um, inventive within the constraints. Yes, the restrictions actually create more uh, stimulate their imagination in ways that not having description just uh, constrictions wouldn't. Right. And I would say that's probably why you have such great writing within 200 pages as opposed to 700 pages or 900 pages or 1,000 pages. 
So we were talking about um, Russ McDonald being uh, the accepted wisdom is that he turned the hard-boiled mystery novel into literature. And I wanted to read it from an excellent book by called Ross McDonald in the Twain's United States Authors Series. It's by Bernard Chopin. And uh, he has this to say. He says, what makes a work popular rather than serious is a clear intent to offer the reader confirmation of his popular biases, views, or ideologies. I think that's very apparent in uh, Mickey Spillane's novels. He was writing to a very specific audience, mm-hmm. and he wanted to reassure them that his character, Mike Hammer, was doing what needs to be done to, to, to save the United States and other people from corruption and evil. And so he reassured those mostly returning soldiers and and men uh, who were in a world post-war world that they thought was uh, going to hell in a handbasket. And he wanted to let them know there was somebody out there that didn't fight by the rules and it was going for justice. You know, McDonald was far away from that. In fact, he uh, talked in some place. I don't have the quote, but he talked someplace about uh, actually turning away from that to try to make the detective more uh, empathetic. And uh, so getting to the point about it, literature, he says that uh, the word says nothing about the essence of a particular work. It describes only the value we place on that work. Literature is simply writing valued by the culture. Wow. Wow. That's pretty heady stuff. (laughs) That is. That is. I mean, one can debate that. But I tend to lean toward it being true. And I think one of the things that McDonald did was that he took this genre from the pulps and, as you said, used the examples by other excellent authors, Kane, Hammett, and Chandler in particular, because his first half of his career was very much like Chandler. Yeah. And I created, agree with that. A de- created a detective who cared. Well, and that's the thing. And you feel that. I mean, we talked about, for instance, him being so blunt about confronting his characters. Uh, let's go back to Jameson, right? Uh, who's who's uh, got the eating disorder and is constant eating. When he calls him out on his um, problem, on his disorder, he also talks about how much he likes Jameson. Yep. You know, and and. You know, you should see a doctor. You you're, you're doing this because of this, and as blunt as that is, he's trying to help that guy. Yep, he's trying to help him. Same thing with with Harry. Same thing with Bess. You know, he he calls them on their um, foibles, but I think there's an actual like he's trying to like encourage them to see themselves so they'll improve themselves. Yeah. Exactly. I think it's also I think it's also um, interesting to point out that he pulls on a gun at one point, but there's no fist fights. He doesn't get a bit to a big fist fight with anybody. I don't think he he doesn't pull the gun. He has it because he says I, I may need to protect myself. But and how different is that from 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 Mickey Spillane? Right. Well, I I actually had a chapter. I want. I, 
I don't want to go through all the descriptions of it, but I think the contrast between Archer first meeting Harry, Harry was waiting outside of the home of Martell to try to get information on him. Uh, uh, Archer discovers him and Harry sort of threatens him as he gets up in his face, threatening violence. And I think in the, on, in the page, he writes uh, sort of the thoughts of Archer and Archer says, I knew that if this was going to turn into violence, I had to be, I had to get up into his face and let him know that that wasn't going to happen. Or if mm -hmm. it did, I would handle it. And he diffuses what could be a violent situation. Right. Whereas in a scene that I read in Spillane, not only does he include, not does he encourage getting into a fight with the guy, but he breaks the guy's teeth with his gun. Right. And he smiles thinking, this really feels great. I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. There's a sadistic yeah. element to it. So you're talking Very about the, so. the two poles of the kind of detective that that was being produced in the post-war. And I think what McDonald did was he created a space with his style of writing, his careful and considered writing, and his, his sympathetic detective, and his emphasis on families unraveling and dreams unraveling, phony dreams being uh, shown up for what they are. He created a space for later authors like Sarah Paretsky um like sue grafton and parker to be able to write in i think that's a really good point um i also think that that's why he endures i think so I think, too. i think his empathy makes his character so sympathetic um that you relate to him and that's a key thing is you relate to how archer sees things there's a there's an empathy there's a um world weary yeah that i think we all feel and that and we a all loneliness that. and a loneliness you know lonely, you know he says i've been married yeah you know and um and you feel the weight of his past on him, which I don't think you feel with the Continental Op. I don't think you feel that with Spade as much. You feel it, I think, to an extent with Marlowe. And I think Marlowe is probably the best ancestor for Archer. Well, that's the reason why I think uh, McDonald or Kenneth Miller uh, studied him so closely and, 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 and used his style in his early books. Mm -hmm. because he thought he was such an accomplished writer. But I think his real sources were things like The Great Gatsby, which was his favorite novel, and he read over and over again. He liked the style, the concise style. He liked the idea that there was a, there was a surface. Um, your analogy was talking about the ice and the monsters underneath. There was right. a surface glitter that his job was to get underneath all of that. Yeah, you know, he talks about um, he has a description in one of his in in Black Money, where he goes to meet a guy, I think a real estate guy or somebody having to do with the knowledge about uh, the city that they're in, and he said he his true blue all American look was warped, like peeling veneer around the edges. Mm. So again, something underneath 
what is on top. That's right. That's right. Again, again I think that um, you so see that with each of these characters, as we've said, um, specifically with Martell, who is the yes talk about layer upon layer upon layer reinvention upon reinvention upon reinvention methodically so yeah and all aiming towards jenny which is his daisy yeah from from the great gas he raised himself up using his dreams in fact he says at one point he says I thought as I drove away that Martel was one of those dangerous dreamers who acted out his dreams, a liar who forced his lies to become true. Wow. Yes. Yes. And what happens is, is you're under, you're, it challenges the reader because so often mystery novels, especially hard-boiled, rely on formula and expectations. And you first meet Martel and you think he's this type of person. Then Archer discovers information and you change your opinion of him. So it becomes this type of person. And that happens over and over again until you get to his, I don't want to reveal the ending, but you get to his pathetic mm -hmm. ending of his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm going to come back to what I'd said before. I think the fact that he inserts the play, no exit. Mm -hmm. is such a telling aspect and especially especially to that character especially to 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 martell right you know um because this is a person who has built himself i mean he is um uh you know pulled himself up from his bootstraps he started at one end and he ended up at least surfacely you know, as an in, into an elite thing, but there are things that he can't escape. Yeah, there are aspects of it that he can't escape, and we could get into the whole aspect of racism and caste. That's another. I got. We'll could, hold off on that one. I got another thing we'll talk about. Okay. Um, my favorite. One of my favorite chapters in the book was chapter four, the scene with Jameson's father, the alcoholic father, mm -hmm. who's drinking himself away. And uh, um, Archer refers to him. He talked like a man who needed a listener. Yes. And and the father says at one point something that encapsulates Martell's whole life. He says it's dangerous to get what you want, you know. It sets you up for tragedy. But my poor son can't see that. Young people can't learn from the misfortune of others. Wow. It's such a great... Um scene i love that scene in there that's a great uh, there, scene and again you want to go back to chandler go back to the big sleep where yeah. he meets the general um but and again you also have literary aspects of it when he when marlo goes to meet the general he sees that huge uh painting of uh yep. the night yeah when when um archer goes to meet the father he's reading the book of the dead yep you know, but it's upside down. Upside down. <laughs> He's got it upside, you know. <laughs> I remember it, laughing at that. Yes, you know, it was a, it was a cover. You know, it's like, I, I can't just be seen sitting here drinking, you know. And then you have the flip of that. If you go to back to the big sleep, um, the general asks, gives him a drink and he can't drink. And he, he vicariously enjoys right. Marlowe having yeah. a drink, 
you know, but in this case, we have uh, we have a guy who supposedly has it all, and he, you know, he can't even take pride in his own son. Yep. You know, but that's it's a, those that little, is, that's a those thing. personal tragedies all the way all the way through it, which lead to a compounded tragedy for people that ends up in murder and lost lives and 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 a desolate soul. I wanted to say that Black Money was published the year after the Watts riot in 1965. Yeah, I, 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 I saw that and I also have read about that. And Do you think that Black Money is an indirect comment on race by Kenneth Miller? Yes, and, and this is why I, I, I would say that. Um, and, it, and it all comes down to Martell. It all comes down to Martell. Um, because they constantly talk about um, it's the money that he flashes yep. that gets him into where he wants to be. Into a white you know, enclave. Into a white enclave. There's that great moment where Archer has been is tracing his background and he comes across the landlady from oh, that's seven a years, great from scene. seven yeah. years before, and she's all about, you know, he was Mexican. Don't think I don't know a Mexican when I see one. And it's such a beautiful rendition of racism against the Mexican, you know, how she perceives Mexican people. Right. You know, it's I knew it was a mistake, and and it's not a mistake because he was a student. Or he might have been poor it's because he was Mexican. It's because he was Mexican, right? And he's you know. accepted in the white society because he has money, right? And, and he's pretending, he and he's pretending to be a French refugee, political refugee, right? And again, it's interesting that he chooses that he wants to be a refugee, yeah, an outsider, an outsider, even in the country that he's claiming to be a part of, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's and it's also um, there's a second there's there's two times he he claims to be a political refugee. Is there's the French, and then he also claims to be a Spanish refugee, right? Doesn't yes, he? yes, yeah. So he's constantly like there's a sympathy aspect there. Look at me, I'm I'm, you know, I'm in need of being accepted because I stand for my ideals and yep. you know. Um, and yet again, it's all layers. It's all. Yep. It's all. It's all. It's McDonald's all slowly builds your empathy, your sympathy for Martel. Yeah, right up until the end. Right. You... And, um, and and it starts out with. Let's face it. It starts out with not. You feel. You see. The great thing about the book is you see where he came from. Yeah. Even though he has done despicable things. You know the the beating of Harry, yep. the uh, the the sheer audacity of of that first conversation yes. with with Harry. Right. You know he's an ugly person. Controlling Ginny and and manipulating her. Yeah, yeah. But Ginny wants that. She she falls for him. You know I think. Well, again, um, she falls for a dream, something that isn't true, or is she working with this other person whom we can't name because it'll screw up the. Yeah, that's a, a good for point. You. That's actually a good point. Um, Jenny, it's interesting. The The book ends with a focus on her character that is just so sad. 
Yeah. That it stuck with me even after the second time I read the book, it stuck the, the, with the, me for a couple days. Yeah. The, the, the apps, the imagery of that last page. So wonderful. It's just beautifully done. Yeah. And you cut if you take the yeah you don't want to give stuff away but if you take of everything that has happened prior to that that has led to that is anybody happy in, at the end of this book no i don't think so anybody if they're left yeah. alive you know if they're left alive <laughs> i think well, another another great thing that he does is his way he treats female characters in the the book they're fascinating um, one of my, uh, my other favorite chapters, chapter 12 in the breakwater hotel scene where Archer meets Mrs. Hendricks, mm -hmm. Harry's mm -hmm. ex-wife. Um, it's just so incredible. I have a little, just a tiny little passage. I want to read you on that one. She picked up her radio and bag, got her coat out of the closet and put it on while we're waiting for the elevator. It may have been the noise of the elevator or the radio or some perpetual sign which her body sent up, but when she crossed the lobby with me, all three of the Sharpies were squatching from the curtained doorways of the Samoa room. We drove along the boulevard, the rising wind buffeting the car. Out to sea, I could make out occasional white caps, faintly phosphorescent. They rose up like ghosts, which are quickly swept backwards into the darkness. The woman peered out along the empty beaches. She turned up the window on the ocean side. Are you okay, Miss Hendricks? The whole thing of him meeting her and evaluating her in two levels, one as a, just as another person, and then also what can I learn from her about this information that I'm trying to get. Right. And eventually they end up going out and going to this place where Archer had an encounter with some homeless people, which I also think was an incredible touch. Look at the range from homeless people to the most wealthy in the city. Right. And right. they go out there and he can't find what he's looking for. And she thinks he's brought her there to kill her. Which is an interesting thing because it's not, the, you know, it's, it's, um, she has, you know, are you out to kill me? And then there's a, there's a later episode where it's like, you're out to kill me. Right. There's, there's such a, um, a sense of we're And it's a, it's all about a sense of being found out. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be found out. And the result is you're going to kill me. Right. And again, there's the, the, he's just trying to uncover the truth. That's all, you know, he he doesn't come across as a threatening character. But it's her own this, mind. She's manufacturing mind. this. Exactly. It's her own mind and her own guilt. And the same thing happens with the wife of the professor uh, yes. who uh, Archer goes to get uh, a quiz to find out if Martel is really French or not. The professor's wife, when he goes to his house, is immediately attracted to Archer. And Archer right. is attracted to her. And tells her at one point he'd love to go to bed with her. Yes. And that's a great thing. Um, she says, why don't you? And he says, well, there's a kid in the house and a husband in the wings, which is just a great phrase. Yep. You know, but it also brings 
a real human aspect, again, a human aspect to Archer. Yep. He, he had, you know, it makes you wonder if the kid wasn't there, would the husband be enough to keep him right. from, from, right. from acting on his desires? But there's a morality to him. Well, look at the difference between the types of, of detective characters. On one hand, you have this Belaine character who has no self-control whatsoever. Right. You know what he would have done if that woman had said, I want to go to bed with you. <laughs> Two seconds later, they'd be in, in the bedroom, you know. Right, exactly. Or Marlowe, who may have done it and may not have done it, depending on whether it could give him an advantage or not in mm -hmm. the case. He's more uh, calculating, more Machiavellian. And then we get to Archer, who who not only doesn't do it because it's not the right thing to do, but because of what would happen to other people. Exactly. Exactly. I like people. I mean, he, he there says, you go. I like people. Um, I, I, I wish I could find that passage. <laughs> find yeah. that passage at some point. I wish I could. Well, send it, it to it, me. It, find it and send it to me and I'll include it in the notes. Okay. Cause it's, cause it is a beautiful aspect of his personality i think yeah. of, of what drives him and um and uh what's the other thing i feel bad about leaving a case un unsolved yep you know he 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 like like us like the reader wants to at least have some kind of conclusion yeah which is of course i think what drives us to uh crime fiction in general you know we want to see how things play out right in the course of an investigation and i think and, that uh, again the the aspect of the genre itself leads us to those to that um to that aspect of storytelling yeah i we think we want to so go too. from a to b to c to d to e and end up at c right and i think if you um and i'm going to use uh air quotes here literature and this is not putting down anything i mean you don't have to be you can be mickey spillane you can be of course Dashiell Hammett. you don't have to be salman rushdie or um you know john cheever you or know don delilo yeah exactly um which can spell out a, a 900 page book and and still have an ambiguous ending yeah. i think the genre constrictions that we have in crime fiction is you get at least some kind of resolution. It may not be a resolution you like. It may be, you know, an un, a um, uh, but you get an answer. Yeah, this person was guilty. They may get away. They may not get away, and you may yep. not like that. Yeah, but at least you know that person did it. This is what went down. And McDonald does that in a very unique way. At one point, 90% through the book, he has, uh, Archer has a, a sentence that, that struck out to me. He said, past and present were coming together. And I think that's what you could say about all of his later novels. He's in the present. He discovers those corruptions in the past that have led to the tragedies of the present. Mm -hmm. And they spiel together into a resolution, and that's his resolution. The sins of the past, the failures of the past, the evils of the past come to haunt the people that that 
that took those actions. Well, that has led to the reason he's there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. That's yeah, a yeah, better yeah. way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. I want to talk a little bit at the end now about something that I discovered as I was doing research for Black Money and also on McDonald. Um, I read a really interesting blog uh, at thepassingtramp.com about politics being a factor in, in Ross McDonald's legacy. There are many people uh, who say, not the majority, but there are those who say that McDonald was too soft. Uh, the traditional readers wanted their hard-boiled stories hard. There was too much psychologizing there, say arms, like armchair psychology. Um, and that he pointed out that these, these critics tend to fall along political lines. Conservatives tend to make that claim against Ross McDonald, whereas liberals uh, tend more to see him as an innovator in the, in the way that you and I are talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I think, I think there is, there are two camps. And if you want to say conservative and more liberal, maybe so. I think that as a, 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 there is a camp that wants slam bang, that wants Nikki Spillane. They want to know that things can be handled with a sledgehammer, Mike Hammer. Um, but I think that, especially starting in the mid 60s, you began to have a populace that was more thoughtful, that wanted to see a deeper resolution to um, problems, wanted to know that there was more than just black and white. And I think that that is where McDonald took his books. He began to show us layers. He began to show us different aspects of people as people, not as just black hats and white types, hats. Yeah. Types, tropes, if you will. Um, I don't see any I, reason why you can't have both. Why, why make a judgment in saying one is better than the other? If you enjoy reading Mickey Spillane, read him. Don't get me wrong. I think uh, I'm not putting down people who like, you know, Mickey Spillane as opposed to uh, um, Lou Archer. Or, and I think you see a blending of, of those characters to an extent with Robert B. Parker Spencer. Ah. You know, Spencer showed us different uh, Parker showed us different layers of characters, but his, but Spencer could handle things as easily with a fist and a shot if he had to. I think, um, I, but I, but, but I think that whatever you enjoy to read, whatever brings you, um, pleasure, whether it be, you know, a guy pulling a 45 and, and aiming at the gut of, of the femme fatale or the femme fatale being led away in, in uh, handcuffs, having been caught by a more methodical um, detective. It's all good. Yeah. It's I all, think it's the problem comes in when the politics turn into judgments 
Like, for example, uh, um, Max Allen Collins, who was a, a, who, by the way, has just put out a new biography of Mickey Spillane, was a big defender of, of Mickey Spillane and was upset that the mystery writers hadn't given him a lifetime achievement and everything, um, completely failing to see the, <laughs> the points that the other side was making on, on why they shouldn't give him a major award. But... Uh, and blind to the cultural changes. But one of the things he said about McDonald's is he just kept writing the same book over and over again. Same book over and over again. You know, families, the same stuff. And I think that is just sort of a willful ignorance of what McDonald is trying to do. McDonald was in a writing at a time, Kenneth Miller was writing at a time in which culture was changing. And as you right. pointed out, they wanted different things different types of things. And he wanted to also, uh, uh, Miller was a different kind of person. He was interested in all kinds of things. He was interested in people. And so he wrote from his own life. I think if you can't see the value in that, you may, you may prefer not to read him and that's fine. But if you can't see the, the value in that, then I think you're just making, you're blinding yourself deliberately. Well, the, the exploration, and I, and I keep coming back to the to layers and depth. If, if in reading Black Money, every character, no matter how small, you get a richness to what's beneath them as people. Yes. And I, and again, I'm not putting down Mickey Spillane, but you, I don't think you get that with Mickey Spillane. No, I don't think you do. You get a different kind of experience reading him, and that's fine. I don't say. I mean, there was a reason that Mickey Spillane's My Camera sold millions and millions of copies of and his book. And continues to sell millions and millions yes. of copies. Yeah. And you you remember um, when we would work at the bookshop, we were constantly selling oh, sure. Mickey Spillane. You know? And people who recreate his stuff in modern form, either in graphic novels or in movies or in podcasts or what what have you. It's still very popular. But yeah. we we can have both just fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do think that um, we have in mystery fiction, crime fiction, it is always a representative of times and the culture of the time and the cultures of the time. I think that uh, if you look at, uh, for instance, um, Greg Hurwitz's Orphan X series, if you look at um, the avenging angel kind of thing. I think there's a prevalence of that right now mm -hmm. of, of the guy who sweeps in and in, in sort of a softer Mickey Spillane way handles problems that we, that we are experiencing in a sort of a slam bang fashion. Yep. You know, uh, There'll always uh, be an appeal for that, but I think yeah. McDonald created a space for female detectives. He created a space for for ethnic minorities being detectives. Look at the Walter Mosley Devil in a Blue Dress. That whole series. Yes, yes. the Easy Rollins. Right, the so, whole thing. He created I, I, that I, space for them to to write in. Well, and he created a space where it is. Um, more brain than fist. There you go. And I think that that there is a place always for that. I think there's a 
there's a place where it is a sort of um, force is the answer, and McDonald laid the room with where thought process is the yep. answer and empathy and, and empathy, and I think that's what you see so much in Black Money. Yeah, in it is the the way he reveals the answer to the mystery as opposed to forcing the yeah, answer to the mystery. That's a good way to say it. Do you think McDonald is still relevant to readers in the 21st century? I think so. I think it's relevant in his look at society because a lot of that societal stuff doesn't change. We still look at the, the uh, caste system. Yeah. And, you know, I think we still see racial, modern racial, racial issues, racial issues, certainly psychological issues. Yeah. I mean, Ginny's uh, dependency on on on, you know, what she what she uh, who she's fixated on, right. why she's fixated on that right. person. That's very same, relevant. Same thing. It with, also occurred at a time in which Southern California just boomed. I mean, it exploded in uh, in uh, uh, not only uh, technology and in economics, but in uh, the amount of people and houses that were going yes. down, yes. and and a changing ethnic minority. And I think he covers that really well. So there's a historical element to it. I think the pre-internet issue of it might turn some readers off because there's no cell phones, there's no checking on the internet to find stuff. He did things the old-fashioned way, you know. I, but but the, but is that going to stop you from reading Chandler? Is that going to stop you from reading Kane? Is that going to stop you from reading Hammett? Which good point. has the same stuff. That's a good point. No, what you what you get is the richness of the text. Ah. You get the richness of how he presents his story. I, I and I want to. I, I I would be remiss if I didn't say one of the things that uh, I think that this. This novel has one of the most horrific deaths that I've ever read, and that's the uh, the mother who's who's murdered. Oh, I know that's terrible. I mean, it's really terrible. I had to go back and reread. Yeah, you know the the knocking at the door. Or, yep. You know, and you know, is to the re to the listeners out there that death is worth the price of admission just because it's so unexpected horrific and it's without being graphic and beautifully put together beautifully brought out and is such a fundamental aspect of the story well i think that pretty much wraps it up for us i think you've laid it out ross mcdonald is an important um writer who laid the foundations for other writers to write in his wake. He was an incredible man. If you want to read a good biography, the Tom Nolan biography is a good one. Um, also recommend the, the letters between him and Adora Wetley. Yes, he was close with Adora Wealthy. And also you can start anywhere in his canon, but if you want to get some of his best writing, start with the Galton case. That's really good. I agree with that. I, I do think one of the one of the things that I do love about um, Hammett and love about Chandler and love about McDonald is you can pick up any of the books. Yeah. I like serial books. I like the, the books that build upon each other, but 
as booksellers, you know, it's like, oh, that's not the first in the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, that's oh, that's the third book. <laughs> you can pick up any of McDonald's books, and you're going to get a a complete, you know, basically standalone. Yeah, story very about very readable. About He's a careful and incisive author, thoughtful. You'll enjoy them. Yeah, highly well, recommend it. Thank you very much, Richard. Appreciate that. I really enjoyed it once again. A really interesting topic. Who shall Such we talk about next? Who shall we read next? Oh my gosh! Um, wow. How do you feel about talking about Lawrence Block? Let's do it. I would. I. I would find that to be a really fun conversation Great. to have. You pick the Some book, of, and we'll 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 cover it. I've got the book. I can tell you right now. What is it? When the Sacred Gin Mill closes. Okay, that's a deal. Okay. All right. All right. Friend. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you thank very you, much. By the way, uh, listeners, if you want to see our show notes, there'll be uh, bibliographies of all of the books we mention. I'll also talk about the various covers, which we didn't get into very much this time. Bantam was his major publisher, and they changed the images on their covers according to the sort of zeitgeist of the time. And that's a fascinating story. Uh, there's so many interesting covers. Yeah. Um, there's an Italian cover that is yeah. at, that's that's my favorite. Really that's good. My own personal really favorite. good stuff. All right, my friend. Thank you Thank very you much. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. Yep. Thanks for having me.